Uh, this morning we are talking about unity, as you see on the back of your bulletin. But I want to start before that with the Trinity. The Trinity is one of those really difficult things to even begin to try to attempt to understand. It's one of the most difficult theologies and beliefs and doctrines to study. There are countless illustrations to try to help us wrap our mind around the concept of the Trinity, but there's a video on YouTube that it demonstrates that most of those, if taken to the extreme, lead to some sort of heretical view about Jesus. But the, the ultimate, the big picture that the Trinity tries to explain that we have trouble wrapping our mind around is that there is one God, but we understand God in three different ways, and we see God show himself through Scripture and in our lives in three different ways. And so there's one God, God the Father, but there, he also manifests himself as God the Son, Jesus Christ, and then there's God the Holy Spirit. And we like to think about those as three, but they're really one. And so some people talk about water, and so you have ice and steam and liquid water, but they're all the same chemical composition, uh, but if you want to enjoy a few minutes of laughter and trying to understand the Trinity, that is one of those that ultimately leads to some sort of heretical view about Jesus. And some people talk about the egg and you have the shell and the white and the yolk. There are all kinds of ways to try to understand it, but really in reality what we have to come to is that there is no way for us to truly grasp that concept. We just understand that that's what we believe. In Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we would still say that. We have one God. We are not polytheistic with many gods like the Greeks and the Romans and Hindus and Buddhists. And There is one God. But we see God manifest himself as God the Father. And we see God manifest himself as God the Son. And we see God manifest himself as as God the Holy Spirit. What is interesting to me as I study Scripture is that that in indistinctable unity, being one, is the unity that the church is called to. If, if the Father and Son, if God the Father and God the Son would have had any disunity in them, or in their purpose, or in their means, we would be in trouble. Think about it. If God the Father and God the Son both had the purpose, and they were unified in purpose of redeeming mankind, but God the Father thought it was going to come through the cross, and God the Son decided that it was going to come through war, we'd be in trouble, because that redemption wouldn't have come. And so, apart from their unity, we have no hope. Which is what brings us to John chapter 17. It's page 903 in your pew Bibles. We're going to read verses 20 through 26. This is in the upper room. It is immediately before Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And he knows what is coming. He knows that this is the last conversation that he's going to have with the disciples before he's betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified. It's also interesting because we often put a lot of weight in people's last words. And this is Jesus' final prayer. 
And out of all of the prayers that we see Jesus pray through the Gospels, this is by far the longest. It seems when you read it that he just goes on and on and on because he knows what is coming and he knows what is at stake. So there's some important stuff here. And we're going to look because one of the things that I think is amazing about this prayer is in these, these few verses we're reading, Jesus prays not for the disciples, not for himself, but for us. Jesus prays for us in this, these few verses. John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, and the Christians then, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What's interesting to me about this prayer is what Jesus prays three times. Three times Jesus prays that we would be one. Father, I pray that they would be one. Two of those times, there's a direct request. One of those times that request is implied. He says that they may be one as you and I are one. The third time that's implied. So Jesus' prayer is that we, the body of Christ, would be one. We would be so unified that we would be indistinctable just like the Father and the Son. That we would be one. Jesus prayed that you and I and the person sitting next to you and the churches worshiping in town this morning would be one just as he and the Father are one. The second request elaborates a little bit and explains why. He says this, he says, I pray that they would be one just as you, are, you and I are one so that the world may know that you have sent me. The purpose for which Jesus has called us to unity and has prayed for our unity is because it directly impacts our witness. When we are unified, the world knows that God has sent Jesus. The third request elaborates that one further. He says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. And then there's a little word and in there. And that you have loved them even as you have loved me. You need to understand that your unity or your lack of unity is a reflection to the world of the love of Christ. The extent to which you are unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ is the extent to which people know that Jesus, or that God sent Jesus and that God loves them. 
So your disunity with the church, whether it be the congregation or somebody in the church or another congregation, your disunity mars the name of Christ. I think we're seeing the effects of that throughout our culture. People say, well, the church can't even get along with itself. Why should we be a part of it? Who are they to tell us how to live? They can't live with each other. People through the church are throwing their marriages away. Why should we listen to their marriage advice? They claim to be brothers and sisters with them and they're worshiping with them on on Sunday and they're stabbing them in the back through the rest of the week. They talk bad about them behind their backs. Why should I be a part of that? What difference does Jesus make if that's the way their life looks? The point is this, the unity of the church is mission critical and it needs to be a priority in prayer. Think back to the Ephesians 4 that we read this morning, starting in verse 13. Because Paul says that all of these gifts that Christ has given the church, he has given them for the building up of the body. That's the end of verse 12. The teachers, the prophets, the evangelists, the apostles, all of these gifts that were given were given for the building up of the body. And then in 13 he says this, the building of the body until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He goes on. Did you catch those two things, though? What what Paul says is unity is mature manhood. Disunity is childish. When you show up to church and say, make me happy, do what I want, you are not being a Christian, you are being childish. That is not maturity. Maturity is selfless and loving and kind. It is childish to demand your way. And what's worse is it makes Jesus look bad because people look at the church and say, they're a bunch of selfish hypocrites. Why would I want to be a part of that? They don't even love each other. Why would I want to be a part of that? And so I want to explore for a few moments some things that I think are causes of disunity. Gossip. Do you ever feel unified with somebody when you find out they're gossiping about you behind your back? Talking about you behind your back? Do you want to be friends with people that gossip about you and stab you in the back? Anybody? No, gossip leads to disunity. Jealousy leads to disunity. When we are jealous of what somebody else has, it hurts our relationship with them. Greed, pride, selfishness. What's interesting is Paul actually addresses these in the beginning of Ephesians 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When I look at this list on the screen, I don't see humility and gentleness and patience and love reflected. 
The one we're probably going to spend the most time on, though, or there's a couple, I think one of the biggest causes of disunity is unreconciled offenses. Lack of reconciliation. Because when we have issues with people, we don't want to be around them. And we can't be unified with somebody we don't want to be around. And so the first area in which we have unreconciled offenses would be guilt. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you're on your way to present your offering, and on your way you realize that somebody has something against you, before you go present your offering or partake in the remembrance of the offering of my body, go be reconciled to your brother. Then you can come present your offering with a clear conscience. Uh, The second one would be bitterness, which Jesus addresses in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, and he says, if you have something against somebody, if somebody has done something to offend you, go to them and be reconciled. What's interesting to me here is when we have unreconciled differences with people, they fall in one of these two categories. But what often happens is we say, well, if they have something against me, they can come talk to me about it. Sorry, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you know they have something against you, get off your seat and go reconcile. And sometimes we have something against someone else and we say, well, you know what? They offended me. They can come apologize. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if somebody has offended you, get off your seat and go address it. But he gives a few specific instructions with that that I want to walk through. The first one is go alone. When you go to talk to somebody that has offended you, go alone. If that doesn't work, go with one or two others. Now, this this doesn't imply you go pull everybody that you know and find two people that support you and take them with you. He doesn't say go fish and find supporters. Hey, what do you think about what they did the other day? Because I was watching that and I just didn't think it was right. Oh, you, you didn't think so either? Will you come talk to me with them? Come talk to them with me. If it doesn't reconcile with one or two others, he says to take it to the church and present it before the church. And if that doesn't work, he says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, which for me is the hardest part to understand about that. And the best I can do is say I look at 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says if there is somebody among you who is practicing immorality that is a believer, don't even eat with such people. If they're greedy, if they gossip, if they're sexually immoral, if they're liars, if they're idolaters, I think those are all in there. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12, if you want to write it down. What he does say is, you're not to judge those outside the church, but you have an obligation to judge each other. But what's funny is we often say, well, I tried to reconcile the way Jesus said to, but it just didn't work. I went and talked to them, and it didn't reconcile. So Jesus really doesn't know what he's talking about. Or we say, well, I went and talked to them, and it didn't work. So I got a couple people, and we went and talked to them, and they still didn't, they didn't want to reconcile. So obviously, it's a lost cause. The reason that we don't see what Jesus says to do work is because we never do it the way Jesus says to do it. When was the last time you saw people take two people with them and it didn't work and they brought it to the elders of the church or they brought it to the church and said, this is what's going on? We don't do it the way Jesus says to. 
If you have unreconciled differences in your lives with somebody else, it's because you have not settled it the way Jesus has said to. Because in the seven years that I have been here, I've never once seen this go to step three. So unless it's something that's older than seven years, if there's anything in the past seven years amongst us that's unreconciled, it's because you're not doing this. We aren't doing this. Quit saying Jesus' way doesn't work when we're too stubborn to do it the way Jesus tells us to do it. Because this hurts the unity of the church, which hurts the purpose and the cause and the love of Christ. When you refuse to reconcile the way Jesus calls you to reconcile, whether you are the offending party or you are the offended party, you are getting in the way of the mission of Jesus. You are hurting the cause of Christ. The last one that I think is a big one too is we take our focus off of Christ. Uh, there are several ways in which we do this, and this could be, all of these points could be entire studies, each one. Uh, Paul talks about this a little bit in the beginning of 1 Corinthians when people are like, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter, and then there's those super spiritual people. Well, you guys can follow them, but we only follow Jesus. And they have their spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance because all they do is follow Jesus. They don't follow some man. And maybe for people here, it's I follow Tom Doherty and I follow Sam Williams and whatever that may be. Or maybe you don't follow man. Maybe you just follow Jesus. Because I turned my eyes upon Jesus and I haven't taken them off since. Because that's what Paul's dealing with in Corinth. And sometimes we take the focus off of Christ. And there's a quote that a. W. To from A.W. Tozer that I think hits on this for us. He says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? So 100 worshipers meeting together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. See, the problem is if you were to have a piano tuner and he tuned one piano and then he tried to tune the next piano to that piano and then he tuned the next piano to that piano and then he tuned the next piano to that piano, by, you got, by the time you got to number four or five, there would be a recognizable difference between the last piano and the first piano. For example, here's a picture of Jesus. Here's a picture, there we go. That's not really Jesus. We don't have a picture of Jesus. That's Jim Caviezel playing Jesus. Good picture, decent picture. Here's a copy of that picture. Pretty good, a little darker. Here's a copy of that picture. Here's the 10th copy of a copy. 10 of them. Each time just copied the copy. And that's what happens when we try to make some sort of unity conscience effort and we want to be unified with each other and we start copying each other and trying to tune to each other rather than all tuning to Christ. Because the reality is, if we go back to the first picture, we could have printed several copies 
like this. And it would look good. But when you start copying a copy, you have the last one. And that's what some of us have done with Jesus. And, and there is that extent to which Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And as I've talked with some friends, we've come to the agreement that means to the extent at which I imitate Christ. Because there are some areas I do not know a single person who doesn't have areas of their life where they struggle to imitate Christ and they fall short. And I can guarantee you that they would not say imitate me in those areas. I really believe that what Paul is saying is imitate me to the extent at which I imitate Christ. Really what he's saying is imitate Christ. Which means reconciling differences, which means being selfless. Remember Philippians 2? If there's any encouragement and hope in all of these things that God has done for you, then have the same mind as Christ, who considered everyone else better than himself and was willing to die a criminal's death. He didn't fight back for his freedom. In fact, the one person that pulled out a sword and had bad aim that day, I really think that Peter was going for Malchus, was it Malchus's name? Well, I think Peter was going for Malchus's neck and missed and hit his ear. Jesus healed his ear. Jesus died a criminal's death on a cross. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that that is the attitude that we are to have. To consider others better than ourselves. And then he says in Ephesians 4, when you don't consider others better than yourselves, you're childish and immature and not really a man. We have a culture that the church talks about needing to focus on men and there's this effeminate, effeminized Jesus picture that Jesus is soft-spoken. That's not really what Jesus was. When was the last time you saw someone that was soft-spoken flip tables and make a whip? It wasn't just a whip that he picked up. It was homemade. Jesus was a survivalist. He made a homemade whip and cleared the temple. And Paul says, biblical manhood and biblical maturity is to be unified and selfless, not demanding your own way like a child. We had a child this morning that was struggling with being whiny. What do children do when they don't get their way? They take their ball and go home, right? When was, how often have you heard through all of your years of experience with the church, if you don't do this, I'm going to take my money and go home. I'll give my money somewhere else. That's not maturity. That is childish. If you use the threat of taking your ball and going home to get your way, you are being childish and you are hurting the unity of the church. You are not looking like Jesus. All of this to say that the unity of the church is mission critical, and it must be a priority in prayer for us. That being said, we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning praying for our unity. So take a few moments and pray and repent for your contributions to disunity, whether it be gossip or jealousy, greed or selfishness. And, and I would remind you that repenting also implies a commitment to stop. It's not just an apology. 
It's a changing of directions. I'm sorry I've done this, and I am not going to do it anymore. Spend a few moments praying. Lord, we are deceiving ourselves if we think that there are any areas that we aren't, if we don't think there is at least one area where we are contributing to disunity. And we recognize that it'll be a battle for us until we die or Jesus comes back. But we are sorry and we are committing to striving to not contribute to that disunity anymore. That we are going to strive to not gossip and to not be jealous and to not be greedy or arrogant and prideful or selfish. Lord, I hope also that as we pray this, we're committing to hold each other accountable and lovingly speak the truth in love, as Paul also says at the end of Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, that we would speak the truth in love to each other and kindly and gently and lovingly point out to each other when we are gossiping or being prideful or jealous or selfish. May we not contribute to the hindrance of the gospel. Amen. This one actually probably could have been with the first one because it's a contribution to disunity, but it's a big one, so I think it's one for us to pray about on its own. It gets its own slide. And that is uh, repent for not reconciling biblically. And commit, again, that repentance implies a commitment to do that from here on out. Take a few moments to pray. God, we like to tell ourselves and tell each other that Jesus just doesn't understand conflict in the 21st century. And he just doesn't understand our circumstances. But the reality is that we just don't do what he said. And I think it's because we recognize that it's difficult to go to somebody and kindly and without accusation say, I was offended when this happened. It's difficult to say that our interpretation of the events may have been wrong, but we were offended. It's difficult for us to go to somebody and say, I'm sorry because I'm pretty sure that what I did offended you because I was wrong. We have to swallow our pride to do that. We have to swallow our pride to lovingly confront conflict with somebody else. 
God, I pray that we would be committed to wholeheartedly following Jesus' instruction no matter how difficult it may be. That we would quit making excuses, that we would quit justifying our sin. James tells us if we know what we should do and we don't do it as a sin, so we, we must recognize that when we don't reconcile conflict biblically, we are sinning against you. Forgive us for that. And give us the strength and the graciousness of speech and the love to be able to do this and honor you. Amen. Lastly, I want to give us a little bit of time to commit to tuning, not turning, but tuning your life to Christ. We can follow mentors and we can look where other people have succeeded just like we do in any other endeavor. But ultimately, it is Christ that we need to tune our lives to. That can't be done if the only time you're in the Word is when we're here on Sunday morning. If you don't have time studying and growing spiritually on your own, you cannot tune to Christ. Honestly, if the only time that you have in Scripture is when you're here, whether it be in worship or in Sunday school, the best you can do is tune your life to the person that's teaching you, which ends up looking like the disfigured Jesus on the screen. So spend a little bit of time praying to commit to tuning your life to Christ. God, it's so much easier for us to compare ourselves to other people than it is to compare ourselves to Christ. And I suspect, because I know it's true with me, that the reason that we tend to try to tune our lives to other people is because it's easier and it's less convicting because we know that even the people that we respect the most, they struggle and they fail at times and they're not perfect. And it's easier for us to try to tune our lives to somebody that's not completely perfect than it is for us to tune our lives to Christ. But I pray that we would all commit to pursuing Jesus and commit to trying to look like him so that when we look like him, we automatically are in tune with each other. So that the world will know that you sent Jesus and that the world will know that you loved them even as you have loved him. May we recognize that our disunity, our lack of tuning to Jesus, hinders the gospel. Help us to strive forward with our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. If you haven't got it yet, Unity of the church is mission critical, and it must be a priority in prayer. I would encourage you, though, never once this morning were you prompted to pray for the unity of the church. You were prompted to pray for yourself. And while I do think it's important for us to pray that the church would be unified, it starts with us, because we are the only people we can control. 
And by we, I mean you. You are the only person that you can control. I am the only person that I can control. I cannot make you tune your life to Christ. I cannot make you reconcile biblically. I cannot make you quit gossiping. I cannot make you talk with loving words. I can only make sure that I am doing those things and try to encourage each other to do them. And so, while we need to spend time praying generally for the church and its unity, I think our focus in prayer needs to be on the way in which we are contributing or to the unity or the disunity of the church. Because the extent to which we are unified with Christ will either help or hinder our pursuit of Jesus, our glorification of God, and our witness to others. You need to understand that your unity or your lack of unity, the extent to which you are unified with Christ and his bride, is either helping or it is hindering the cause of Christ. And sometimes we need to realize that the way we are behaving is hindering the cause of Jesus. Sometimes we need to realize that collectively we are getting in the way of the cause of Jesus and we need to all reorient our direction and our compass. Let's pray. God, again, I, I repent uh, on behalf of myself and I hope I have the freedom to do that on behalf of those who are here this morning for our contributing to the disunity of the body which contributes to the hindrance of the gospel of Christ. May we all individually fix our eyes upon Christ. May we all strive to imitate him. May we all be willing to let others confront us where we are falling short and where we are promoting and contributing to disunity. And if we call it what it is, where we are promoting and contributing to the hindrance and progress of the gospel where we get in the way and we push people away from Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.